I'm Jonathan Hollow and welcome back to Second Lives, a series of 12 podcasts for the evidence-based investor looking into how lives can take a new direction. Given that the theme of this series is Second Lives, many of my interviewees have made the transition to a new or different life in their 40s or later. But this month, it's all different. My guest today, Scott Morehouse, was a Paralympian athlete and his first life peaked at the London 2012 Olympics when he was only 23. He's now the father of twins and a chartered financial planner for the firm that has generously supported this series, Mulberry Bow. In a very open and honest interview, you'll hear Scott talking about being tapped on the shoulder to become a Paralympian, his take on ability and disability, making the king jealous by kissing now Queen Camilla on the cheek, and what it was like to not get an Olympic medal, and how he made the transition to a new life in his mid-twenties. But just before we roll this interview with Scott, I should just say a little bit more about Mulberry Bow. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with them. They are a very different chartered financial planning boutique in the City of London, one that offers a highly personalised service to around 150 individuals and families. Robin Powell and I like the fact that the team at Mulberry Bow do not have sales targets nor their own financial products to sell. As they like to say, they sit on your side of the table. For more information, just Google Mulberry Bow Wealth Planning or follow the links in the notes for this podcast. So now, to Scott Morehouse. Scott, this is a unique opportunity for listeners to understand what a a thought-through and technical process it is to throw a javelin at a world-class event. Are you able to break it down into the different stages you had to learn and practice and fine-tune? Yeah, javelin is a very technical event. And... So whilst most people are probably used to throwing a ball or a cricket ball of some sort, if you try to do that with a javelin, you'll end up seriously hurting yourself. I think in terms of the the actual throw itself, you know, a lot of people think you might throw with your arm, but actually, you know, you, you don't. I mean, you might do when you first start out, but that's certainly not how you, you end up learning to throw far. Really, the throw comes from the ground upwards. So it comes from the velocity that's that's accumulated through through running, you know, and there's sort of you sort of the next time you see somebody throw a javelin, you'll see what I mean. There's sort of three phases to it. There's the the run up, the approach, if you like, where people are generally sort of face on running with the javelin above their head. They transition into the crossovers, so when they're then moving sideways laterally, and then and then the last piece is is almost like a, it's almost like a mini jump into a plant, and then the idea is that you carry. The momentum and the the velocity that you've built up throughout those phases into the throw so that you plant with one side and accelerate with the other side and it all comes from the hip up through the body and you know your arms meant to be like a whip really like a bit of spaghetti that effectively the javelin just whips off what i'm fascinated by is the fact that you make it sound like it has to be an instinctive process but presumably in order to succeed you must be consciously living each step of it and knowing whether you've done it right and how you can improve it absolutely you know i think you know athletes are very purpose-driven individuals and you know they're very focused on on big goals 
but as part of that, of course, within training, you have you know many goals and and many many parts of of the throwing process that you're working on. And you know some technical aspects, you might crack them in a session. Could take you a couple of sessions. Uh, other technical aspects, you could be working on for an entire season. It really depends what that is, and obviously that's individual to everybody. Often the ideal performance is one that's effortless. You know because if you get it right, if you time all those things up correctly then you know when you throw actually you didn't feel like you throw you know and you can compare that to other things people talk about yeah, if you play golf you know when you when you crack the ball really well often it's the timing's been spot on and you haven't felt like you've hit it and if i'm honest with you then the sad thing is sometimes when you see interviews afterwards and you hear athletes say oh you know i hit it that far or i did this and i didn't even feel like it you know because we've been conditioned from such a young age that the effort and almost tension, you know, equates into outcome, you know, and the, the harder we try and the more that we tense, you know, and, and feel what we're doing, the more that lends itself to a better outcome. But, but in reality, it's actually the other way around. Generally, when you, when you don't feel it and you don't do those things and you don't tense and you just let things happen organically, that's when it tends to, you know, to work in your favor. And you were striving for that mastery. I mean, we'll talk through the the kind of stages of it, but obviously a, a massive highlight was London 2012, mm. the Paralympics, you know, this amazing atmosphere in the home city. I'm curious as to whether you were able to, to feel any of that or enjoy any of that or whether you were so focused on that mastery and your task that it all kind of washed by and passed you by. You know, I think you hear amongst a lot of athletes that have competed at a game, which is generally, yeah, the pinnacle of, of of sport, of your sport, you know, if you're in athletics or if you're in cycling, for example, and, you know, this is something like the Tour de France. But generally, the Olympics is, is, is what you're aiming for. And a lot of athletes, I think it's fair to say, and I've heard people say it, would trade, you know, a games or two to have a home games because being at home in front of a home crowd it really is that extra special. So, you know, there's a, there's a weight that comes with that. You know, there's an expectation level on yourself. Um, there's a weight with wanting to do well in front of a home crowd as well. That certainly, you know, is something you have to contend with. And I just remember getting on the bus to go down to the warm-up track. And it was probably the biggest feeling of intensity that I've ever felt emotionally. You know, you're sort of... Yeah, you're nervous, you're apprehensive, but you're excited. You know, this is the moment you've been waiting for, and there's but there's a lot of a lot of emotions all rolled into one. And I think if anybody had asked me to talk to them on that, I probably would have thrown up. That's the sort of level of intensity that we're talking. And I remember Matthew Pinson, obviously famous rower, and I think in one of his books he talks about from Sydney, where he talks about getting to the start line, and he says hearing an ambulance. And just thinking, I wish the bus we were on would crash and the ambulance would be for me. Behind all this, right at the beginning of your life, before you can even remember it, I believe, you lost your lower leg and you've been very open about how that happened. C can you tell the listeners how that happened? Absolutely, yes. So I was, uh, I was six weeks old and my real father poured hot water um, from the kettle and uh, unfortunately, you know, did some pretty significant damage that resulted in me having my leg amputated at a year old. 
I think the natural question people you know wonder or ask is, well, he surely didn't do it on purpose. So, and unfortunately, you know, sadly, he he was convicted and he went to spend some time in prison as a result of it. So, you know, I guess the flip side of all of that is that it happened to me at a very young age. You know, I don't remember the incident. I don't remember life before. You know, because I was so young. So, you know, I've always grown up from day one with a left leg through knee amputation and had to learn how to do everything, you know, from day one. So I don't have that comparison, you know, which some people have, you know, that lose limbs later on in life, most bike accidents, you know, military. So I'm very fortunate from that perspective. This is Jonathan Hollow and you're listening to Second Lives. I'm interviewing Scott Morehouse about what it takes to start as and develop as a world-class athlete. You said you work with military veterans who've had a, you know, obviously a different experience of loss. Yes, I I worked for a while with a, uh, a firm called Amputees Action, and effectively they did casualty simulation work with the military, and you know it sort of serves a few purposes really. I suppose, firstly, yeah, the sort of serious aspect of 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 training for the military and trying to make it more realistic. You know, I think previously what, what would happen is, you know, they'd choose someone in the squadron platoon whenever that day and they were going to be the injured party and, you know, you'd write on their forehead, your arms blown off or your legs blown off and, you know, it wouldn't be very realistic. And so the whole point of this was that the first time that some of the soldiers might experience somebody with an amputation and how to manoeuvre those people, you know, in a pretty threatening environment you know, wasn't the first time that they come across it. So, you know, effectively we would get made to, you know, made up with special makeup and, you know, look like we've been blown up and we'd get placed in certain, you know, certain scenarios where, you know, the, we'd get a cue. It would be, you know, the big 50 cow going off and that would be our cue to come out and, you know, scream and shout and pretend that, we just been injured, and then there's a whole process that they have to go to repatriate you. So, you know, it, you know that was that was the practical side of it, but of course the mental side of it as well was about sitting down with with the soldiers and and just uh, you know just letting them know what life is like, you know, with an amputation. And and unfortunately, there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of things out there that people hear that aren't necessarily true. And and so some of it's about giving them, I suppose, giving them hope as much as anything else that you know, in hopefully the event that, you know, in the unlikely event that they do get seriously injured, that actually, you know, life after injury is is pretty fulfilling and can be pretty fulfilling. I want to explore language a little bit with you. Paralympian is a very positive word. You know, people be very proud to say that word. Disabled is a much more problematic word. So I'm just interested in your views on how to get language right and which words kind of work best for you to talk about your abilities and any limitations, if you consider you have any limitations? Yeah, I think, you know, Jonathan, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting area because the language change changes, you know, a lot. And I remember growing up, you know, the language was, was a particular way and, you know, the language now has changed. And I suppose it's not just about disability, it's about, you know, a lot of areas of life and, I think often what I find with these, with terminology is that, you know, it satisfies, it satisfies our human need for simplicity and categorization of people and, you know, put people in boxes. 
but often you know messages get lost within that you know so for example you know you often what happens is that the focus point becomes on the disability or the impairment and actually what gets lost is the athlete and the person behind it that's driving you know their successes and you know you probably would have heard a lot around the, the sort of arguments with the blades you know and have they got an advantage or a disadvantage and Oscar Pistorius obviously his story well known and obviously sad uh, the way that that, that uh, played out but you know he did a lot for, for disability sport for the Paralympic movement in the sense that he was the first guy to compete in the Olympics as well as the Paralympics but obviously there was a lot of controversy around the blades that he wore and whether that gave him an advantage and I think you know the evidence on that isn't completely conclusive. There's clearly advantages in some areas, a disadvantages in other areas. You know, how do you put down the scales and weigh one up and which one? What's the net result? It's difficult uh, at this point to say. But in in all of that, what what gets lost is the fact that he is a phenomenal athlete. You know, the fact that you know if it was a case that you just put some blades on and off you go and you run very fast times, then of course everybody would be doing that, and that's not the case. And often I find uh, with these terminologies that get used is that it's those things that get lost you know the essence of the person behind you know this ability and and actually i'm just a, i'm an athlete that happens to have a leg missing you know i did lands Andronic roads a couple of years ago on my own 900 miles in seven days you know i was just scott morehouse doing that and i just happen to have a leg missing you know that that's kind of how i view it but yeah i guess paralympian uh you could you could settle with that i suppose Let's talk about your your sporting journey and how it began, because I believe it began with basketball and indeed with Jay Blades of the repair shop. How did that come about? Yeah, so I used to play lots of football when I was growing up, and uh, basketball was one of those one of those things. And you know, I I grew up in sort of Marlowe Henley on Thames Way, and I you know went to Henley College, and I had friends that um, were from from Wickham and. And Jay did a lot of work in the community there, helping people from disadvantaged backgrounds that perhaps, you know, needed uh, something positive in their lives to focus on. And, and basketball was one of those things amongst many things, actually, that he did. And so, yeah, so I, he actually used to be my basketball coach. And, yeah, me and me and some of my friends and, yeah, we made a, a, big, a good group of friends and ended up, ended up creating a basketball team called Street Dreams. And we... Yeah, we played, you know, prison teams and all sorts of teams. And I guess really it just shows the sort of power of sport, you know, the power of sport in on many levels. It's I think sport is is less about the the thing that you're doing and more about, you know, the the lessons that are learned and, and about bringing people together and, you know, overcoming obstacles. And, and you know, for some people it's getting them away from, you know some of the perhaps the less positive things that are going on in their life and and you know street dreams was definitely that role for a lot of people in the community where i played and yeah it was it was pretty it was pretty incredible and and jay's reinvented himself and you know now is on the repair shop which is yeah which is great to see and so at that point sport was a relaxation and a social interaction but not a profession or an obsession Yes, I think, you know, some people sort of grown up, I think, being quite active and, you know, always having sport in their life. And that was certainly me. I think I just never had a particular sport to focus all my, you know, time and energy and efforts. And 
you know, I got picked up through a talent spotting day, staffed the Beijing in 2008 with London being a home games. There was a lot of money, a lot of investment put into finding talent uh, that could potentially go on to represent Great Britain in, in London and, you know, have the potential to medal. And, you know, I, I benefited from that. So in 2008, I was working telecommunications, um, selling selling network test equipment, which I won't bore you with the details um, of it. Uh, I knew the only way that I wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life. But uh, I, you know, I was humming hard about going to university or not, decided to get some real life experience. That's how that came about. But my boss at the time had heard about a talent spotting day that was taking place in Mile End knew that I love sport and gave me the day off. Actually, I'm not sure whether he uh, was trying to get me out of the business or not, but he gave me the day off and I tried my hand at a number of sports, athletics being one of them, but there was a few other sports as well uh, where I was asked to come back for further trials. But, you know, athletics was probably it was where my passion was. I'd grown up watching athletics. Effectively, I went through a, a selection process over six months at Loughborough and whittled down to the last 10 in the country and then put on a you know fast track development program and had an accelerated journey you know through through the sport athletics and in particular throwing is such a dynamic sport in terms of the training that you do you only throw a javelin twice a week you know you're sprinting you're throwing you're doing plyometrics you're in the gym lifting you know doing all sorts of things that it keeps it very refreshing Now for a word from Mulberry Bow, who have collaborated with us to develop this series. I spoke to Simon Bullock of Mulberry Bow. What does he do to build the culture of trust needed between his firm and its clients? That's a good question. I mean, it's not by accident that one of our opening lines on our website is, it's all about trust. Uh, I suppose it helps that our clients come to us through you know, a referral from a friend or a family member or perhaps an existing advisor. And clients also understand that we're a chartered firm and we're completely independent. There's no products for us to sell, even if we wanted to. I think it's important that our advisors have no sales targets. You know, they focus solely on what's important to the client. But inevitably, once a client's actually working with us, we need to walk the walk, uh, so to speak. I think we've all seen and come across firms that maybe roll out the red carpet initially to win a client's business, but then they don't deliver. Um, we consistently look to do the opposite. We prioritize existing clients above all else. And you know, perhaps reflecting that after eight years in business, we've not received a single customer complaint. Thank you. That was Simon Bullock, the founder of Mulberry Bow. And now back to Scott Morehouse to talk about his journey through sport and life as a Paralympian athlete. So you followed on from this trial by, uh, as I understand it, you started a degree, but not long after that, you were effectively a, a full-time professional athlete in preparation for Paralympics. Yeah, so I, I, so it has a result of being picked up through the Talent, talent ID programme. I... You know, had actually been missing formal education at that point. So, you know, it seemed like a natural pairing for me to go to university, get a degree uh, at the same time as, you know, embark on, on the training journey. And so I did two years full time at the University of Essex and then deferred my last year 
And then after London, I picked that up part-time over two years um, to finish it off. Yeah, the university were very good about it. It got to 2010 and I did a couple of international competitions at World Under-23s where I came away with a silver medal in that. And then in 2011, in January, I was invited to my first senior competition in New Zealand for the World Championships. And that was really the turning point, really. You came fourth in the world there, is that yeah. right? Yeah, so I came fourth and, you know, I didn't go I didn't go with big expectations. And so after I came fourth, I remember I came off the track and the head coach just walked me around and said, you know, London's, London's sort of 16, 18 months away. You know, we think you think you've got your, you know, the ability to get there and, and perform well, but you need to make some changes. And, you know, I have to effectively make the decision to leave my coach at Manchester, give up my degree or defer my last year, move to London, and I joined training group um, at Lee Valley. It was a very, uh, you know, it was a very high standard group that I was in, and I was very fortunate at such a young point in my you know in my career to have had access into uh training with those kind of individuals who you know many of them had been doing their sports for you know 10 to 15 years as athletes you know aside at a much younger age than me they knew themselves very well and you know a big part of of, of becoming a uh a sports person in any in any sport is about understanding yourself and, you know, that's not just from what works and what doesn't work in terms of the training, but also, you know, the mental aspect of sport, which is very, you know, which is a large part of it. And inevitably there'll be ups and downs in sports and it's how you are able to deal with those things. You know, and you learn a lot, a lot about yourself as part of that journey. And that's why it takes a while to become, you know, the best version of yourself as a sportsman, because you make a lot of errors and a lot of mistakes and a lot of lessons along the way. You know, as I said to you earlier, the things that I learned from sport wasn't the, the valuable pieces, wasn't what the medals or you know, wasn't the fourth place. It was it was the lessons that I learned along the way as part of the training, and it's the journey, not the outcome. And you know, that makes a lot of sense when you consider that you know, ninety nine percent of what you do is the journey to the outcome that you're aiming for. So let's keep uh, going with that journey. Uh, one of the next points on the journey was being an Olympic torchbearer. Uh, and that got you into Hello Magazine. Yeah, it was my um, my journey started a little bit early, and uh, yeah, I was I was very fortunate to be one of the eight thousand torchbearers to carry the Olympic torch, and I did it in North London in Haringey. A lot of people don't realise that. So the the flame actually comes across from the previous host nation. So it was Beijing in this case. It's meant supposedly the only open flame allowed on commercial aircraft. And, you know, as you'd have seen, obviously there's a tour around the country. And considering that there was, you know, the best part of 68 million people in the UK to be one of the eight, you know, 8,000, was, I was very lucky. Uh, it gave me a good taste for what the support was going to be like in the stadium uh, ahead, of, ahead of actually being there. And I was very, I was very lucky um, because I ended up running two legs. I could see who I was passing the flame on to, but we couldn't figure out, couldn't find the person before. Yeah, the organizers come up to me and they said, Scott, bit of a situation, you know, would you mind doing us a really big favor and 
sort of half figured out what they were going to ask me and I said, well, what's that? And they said, well, the guy before you hasn't turned up. So would you mind doing two legs? You know, so obviously that was a tough decision. Well, the person that didn't turn up was actually nominated by the Prince's Trust. Prince Charles or King Charles, as we know now, and Camilla turned up to uh, to see, you know, their representative from the Prince's Trust. And and so I remember Charles come over to me and, you know, I'd rolled up my trouser leg so you could see my, my blade. And uh, he said, oh, you know, did you lose your leg? He was, did you lose your leg in the army? And I said, oh, no, I lost it when I was a, a child. Thought probably a bit awkward to tell him the real reason at that point. And, uh, and then Camilla came over with her hand out probably to shake it but you know paparazzi were there and beggars can't be choosers so I uh, I pulled her in and kissed her on on the right cheek and uh, and then kissed her on the left cheek and there was a, a picture captured that made itself into Hello Magazine the next day with sort of a grumpy looking Charles in the background and, and and a Camilla that definitely looked like she was kissing me back I might add. At the 2012 London Paralympics, you came seventh in the world, which by any non-Olympic standard is gobsmacking. But of course, for that reason, uh, you didn't get a medal. And I'm interested in your reflections on that. I mean, the medals exist to spur people on. Mm. Uh, they give a world-beating performance. But it must be very cruel if you are just very close to that world-beating performance. It was, and I think... You know, I think, yeah, there's a number of things that I think about on, on reflection of that. And I think, firstly, you know, where I ended up was exactly where I should have been. You know, I, I, my journey in sport to that point was still relatively young. And, you know, it takes a good 10, 12, 15 years to, to become the best version of yourself within sport. And, you know, I was still very early into that journey. And so, you know, I, in some ways, London came a bit too early for me, although, you know, again, life's all about timing and, you know, it was unfortunate timing in, in that regard, but obviously very great timing and the fact that I was an athlete at, the, at that time. The other the other part to it is, you know, the other part to it is the fact that, you know, because a game is such a big focal point, there's a lot of emphasis on it. Emotionally, you know, as I talked about, yeah, emotionally is a very mixed bag of feelings. And so my performance was okay. Like I performed okay. You know, I didn't put in a bad performance for me. You know, I did a season's best. It was the best that I'd thrown that season. It wasn't quite a personal best. And so from that perspective, I did it and I gave a good account of myself. There was a feeling of, there was always a feeling of, relief in some ways because you know I hadn't also completely messed it up you know and the, the last thing that you want to do is train for such a long period of time and then get there and then end up putting in a really rubbish performance you know feel like a wasted opportunity so you know I didn't sit in that camp either because I hadn't performed in that way so there was a sense of relief and then you know and then and then there's quite a low that comes after being on such a high, you know, from being in an event like that, you know, it's, as I said, athletes are very purpose-driven individuals. So you've been aiming for that thing for quite a while. Suddenly that thing is over. So it's like, what, you know, what happens next? And four years is a long way away to, to think about the next games. And so then, then inevitably you start to feel, you know, a bit, I suppose, sad, a bit lost, a bit 
feeling of it didn't quite go as you'd hoped it had gone, you know, and, and feelings of, well, maybe we could have done this better, maybe we could have done that better. And, you know, and that's the hard thing with sport. It's very, you know, there can only be one gold medalist, you know, there can only be three medalists. And, you know, that's the harsh reality of competing at that level is sometimes things don't always go your way. But as I said, you know, I didn't feel that that was the case. It was just, it was just too early for me. And, and that's kind of, that's where I got to, you know, in terms of my acceptance of it is that it'd been a pretty accelerated journey to that point. So even to get there, there'd been a pretty big achievement and, you know, the hope was was that there was so much still for me to work on to to fulfill my potential and become a better thrower. And and I guess the thing is that you think about is is where is my potential? Is my potential in an area that puts me in contention with a medal? And it certainly, you know, it certainly was. You know, so from that regard, it was, um, yeah, it was encouraging. This is Jonathan Hollow, and you're listening to Second Lives. I'm talking to Scott Morehouse about the highs and lows of his Paralympian journey and his new professional life after sport. You chose a new purpose and a new direction. So tell me about that that moment of choice. How old were you at that point? Yeah, I was 24. So again, pretty young for a... I was 24 in London, 2012. And 20... So effectively what happened after London is... So I was national lottery funded. You know, I had sponsors, uh, Rio Tinto, Lloyd's, TSB, BMW, and effectively I didn't do enough to maintain the level of funding that I was on. And so my funding was taken away. My coach, uh, who was an American coach down path, moved back to the States, had to find a new training group. And so there was a lot of change at that point. And I relocated to Loughborough uh, and trained with a new training group up there under the watchful eye of a guy called Chris Watts. And I, you know, my training was going well. 2013, I qualified for the World Championships in Lyon. Uh, And then in the process of doing that, I fortunately got injured. And I, I remember there was a competition on at Loughborough University and I can still remember it now. And it's one of those things you look back on and you think this was a stupid reason to get injured. But I I was late. Well, I was running late for the for the competition. There was lots of traffic. I lived in Leicester at this point. And I arrived. The competitors had just finished warming up and were starting to compete. And I had to rush a warm-up. Didn't really get much of a warm-up. And effectively went out and hit my first throw and I felt something in my arm. It was quite sore through a personal best in the process of doing. So, um, uh, funnily enough, ended up putting the best six series of throws I've ever put together. The penny had dropped for me in terms of some of the technical points that I was working on. And this was now translating into consistency at, at, at much further level, you know, much further distances. And anyway, came off the competition feeling great you know, improved because I was a British record holder at that time, improved my British record and was feeling really good about the World Championships and Lyon, feeling like, you know, I can go and, and improve on what I'd done before. And sadly, what I'd done is I'd partially torn uh, the ligament in my arm. And fortunately, it was only, it was a minor tear. It wasn't a major tear. But frustratingly, 
I could do everything in training but throw a javelin. So I could, you know, I could lift, I could throw medicine balls, I could, you know, do everything. Uh, but as soon as you put a javelin in my hand, there was obviously a stretch that it caused from throwing uh, that meant that it, I just couldn't, it was so painful. Yeah, I wasn't on funding at that point. And, you know, this, I suppose, is the harshness of elite sport. You know, I said, if I if I compete and I blow my arm up, will you put me back together? And the answer to that was no. So, you know, they kind of think, well, there's more to there's more to life than the throwing a javelin. And, you know, I realized I didn't have, my heart wasn't in it. And so, you know, I thought, you know, naturally it's an opportunity to, to use the sporting platform I created to transition into something else. And that's where financial services come in. So, you know, I'm still peaking in life. That's why I think about it. Exactly. There's more to life than throwing the javelin. And, and that more to life has brought you to, to Mulberry Bow. Yeah. So I, you know, I'd done a business management degree. So there was, you know, some, uh, some relevancy there. And again, you know, I think it's funny, isn't it? How things, things can work out sometimes. Me and Simon got on and I was impressed by his vision of Mulberry Bow. And one day we were having a conversation down the pub where all, where all good, conversations happen and he um you know he mentioned that they were looking for somebody and he thinks i'd be you know good for the role and uh yeah whether i wanted to explore it further and that's what i yeah that's what i did and it was good timing because i was thinking about where the next step was in my career and and certainly what i was doing at seven investment management on the discretionary investment side was becoming a smaller part of the industry um you know and, and arguably didn't have the the longevity on it you know, that uh, the financial planning does. Uh, and I was also very intrigued by, you know, with financial planning, there's a lot more there's a lot more tools that you've got in the kit bag to be able to help clients with. And unfortunately, with investing, nobody's figured out how to predict the future. And so you have very bright individuals working on something that come up with very seductive, very well thought out ideas, but fundamentally they can still be wrong. And that always bothered me. And actually, I like the fact that with financial planning, you could... Obviously, part of it is the investment strategy, but a big part of it is things that are very firmly within your control that if you do these things, then yeah, they, they will lead to good outcomes and you can quantify some of those things. What do you think you, you bring of your own Paralympian experiences, your own life lessons into those planning conversations with clients? I think the biggest thing is it's just about being deliberate, you know, and I think a lot of people uh, go throughout the course of life and without much conscious thought around, you know, big life decisions, things that are happening. And, you know, some people aren't that way minded, you know, and that's fair enough. And I suppose that's why they sense engage the services of people like ourselves, you know, the financial planners is that we, you know, we're paid to think about these things and, and help guide people. Financial planning is about marrying people's money with what's important to them. You know, I think all too often we just get caught in this, uh, convey about this sort of wheel of just accumulation you know could make more of stuff but i think you know a lot of it is obviously about having a you know without being too cliche it's about having a plan you know and in sport you know you very much have a plan there's a there's a there's a science to it but there's also an art to it and that's very much the same with financial planning you know i think it's good to have a, a direction and, and have some thought about you know where we're trying to aim for and, and you know what's the money for what's it all about but of course, be flexible enough that inevitably, you know, things are going to change. People's hopes, dreams, and fears are going to change. Unexpected events are going to come around, and so it's about being flexible enough 
to be able to you know not get sidetracked by those things well scott thank you very much it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for telling your story no john thank you for yeah, having me on and, and thank you for giving me the platform to um to tell my story you know, everybody everybody has a story and i appreciate you uh, allowing me to tell mine So that was Scott Morehouse. I'm sure, like me, you'll have appreciated his remarkable openness and candour. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please bookmark this podcast in your app so that you don't miss the next episode of Second Lives. I'll be talking to Charlotte Lockhart about the movement she and her husband are leading around the world to encourage employees and employers into a four-day working week. And I'd like to thank again Mulberry Bow, a chartered financial planning boutique in the City of London that has worked with us to develop this series. For more information, just Google Mulberry Bow Wealth Planning or follow the links in the notes for this podcast.